0: Welcome to Foundations. My name is Mark Butman. I'm a member here. Served as an elder here for six years, and and so um, we're here to talk about the work of Christ. And last week we we talked about His work in atonement, that is covering for our sins. And now we're going to talk, go even deeper into His work. Talk about substitution. Um, and let me first just review some key points from last week's class about atonement first that God's character requires atonement for sin if we're going to have fellowship with him so God is perfect he's holy and he can't abide sin so he demands that there must be a covering for sin that's sort of the definition of atonement is that sin would be covered God is also merciful and loving so he extends covering he sends atonement through Christ God's commands require atonement. Uh, We deserve the death penalty for our sin, according to God's law. When we break God's law, it brings upon us a death penalty, an eternal death penalty in hell, and in order that we would escape that, we need atonement. And atonement doesn't come uh, according to our good works, but by the work of God alone. So God extends mercy and also executes judgment, justice, through the doctrine of atonement. So now we're going to go deeper, and this is really the heart of the gospel, the doctrine of substitution, Jesus as our substitute. So in substitution, what we have is sort of how atonement works. It's been called the internal mechanism of atonement. So we're going we're gonna to use some big uh, theological words today. I hope you learned something. I have a friend, Mark Sosa, who makes fun of me because he says I use GRE words. So we're going to learn some GRE words today. Um, I like to spend half our time in the Old Testament and half our time in the New Testament, starting with the Old and finishing with the New. Um, in the Old Testament, what we see in terms of the doctrine of substitution is sort of a biblical theology. Biblical theology is where we take a theological concept like substitution and we chart how God teaches it through the history of redemption or through the history of his work. That's what we're going to see in the Old Testament as he teaches this principle through shadows and pictures. And then in the New Testament, we're going to switch to more of a systematic theology. Systematic theology is when we take a topic and we just see everything that the Bible says about that topic and how it teaches it and how we can unpack it. So we're gonna touch a little bit of biblical theology in the Old Testament, a little bit of systematic theology in the New Testament. And then we're gonna see how Jesus fulfills the principle, the doctrine of substitution that God established all the way from the beginning in Genesis through the Old Testament. And then Jesus as that substitute that we will see. So, first we have to understand why we need a substitute, and then we'll see how, jo- how Jesus fulfills our greatest need. So, I'm gonna need your help today. Um, I'll call out scripture passages that uh, I'll take volunteers to read, and there's, there's gonna be a lot. I like to let my classes, I don't like to speak too much, I like to let the scriptures speak for me. So, most of the words that you hear are coming out of my mouth or your mouth, Will form the bulk of today's class that comes from the Bible. And then I'll make some small commentary here and there as we go through. But before we do that, we should pray and ask for the Lord's help. So let me do that. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. And what we're endeavoring to study today is at the very center of your heart, it's at the very center of the gospel. So I pray that you would give us help to understand it, to believe it, to apply it, and if there are anyone who doesn't know you, that, that, that we would understand it for the first time and receive Jesus as our substitute today. So give us help in the hearing and the proclaiming of your word through this class today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Psalm 49. Psalm 49. If someone could get for me, yep, Sharif 7 through 9. We're going to see... What's the problem? Where do we start? Psalm 49, 7 through 9. Got you. One, two. One through seven? 7 through 9. 7 through 9.
1: Got it. Surely no man.
0: So we have a problem we owe a debt of our life to god for our sin and yet another mere man cannot step in to pay the debt that we owe why is that well that man that person that woman owes a debt themselves so they can't they can't pay their own debt and then the debt of another so we have a problem if we're going to escape the pit as verse 9 says and live forever, as verse 9 says, we need someone that's not a mere man to pay the debt that we owe for our sin. This is the the need of substitution that we see in the Psalms. God is immortal and he can't die. So how is he going to solve this problem? God's also holy. He can't betray his character. He can't Uh, betray his perfect justice. Sin's price must be paid. The debt that we owe must be satisfied. So how will God both who intends to be merciful display his mercy but also satisfy his justice while also providing someone who can die to pay that price? That's sort of Where we're going with the Old Testament, that's sort of the riddle that we introduced at the beginning here. So let's go all the way back to the beginning, back to Genesis. I know that we probably heard some of this last week in the Atonement lesson, but I'm going to go back through it again, Genesis 2 and 3. So what we're going to see in these pictures, I'm going to give us about three or four pictures from the Old Testament, passages that illustrate the principle of substitution. We're going to learn something nuance different for each picture of what do we need in substitution for each picture. And in each of those pictures we will see three things. First, that we'll see a penalty for sin declared in one of our verses. Second, that God provides an immediate and temporary substitute to pay sin's penalty. And third, there's always a foreshadowing of a better, more permanent, more eternal substitute to come. So a penalty for sin declared, immediate provision of substitute through God's mercy, so that's temporary, and then a foreshadowing of a more permanent and eternal substitute to come. So Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God declares the penalty for sin. He establishes the garden, he puts the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, in the middle, and he tells Adam and Eve, you can eat of any fruit in the garden except don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the penalty says, uh, Genesis two sixteen. and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for on that day that you eat it, you shall surely die. The penalty for disobeying God's command is surely Death. Dying, you will die. So we see God declaring the penalty. But then, if someone could get for me uh, Genesis 3:21, what do we see? Is uh, let me fill in the gaps here. Um, you know, God declares the penalty. Adam and Eve disobey. They take of the fruit. They eat it. They get deceived by the serpent. They fall into temptation, and then God pronounces. Uh, judgment upon them and upon the serpent, but what does Genesis 3.21 say? Anyone have that? And the Lord God
1: made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothes of them.
0: Okay, so what has to happen if God's going to provide garments of skin for people who have sinned? Uh Yeah a substitute sacrifice of an animal has to be killed has to be provided so that they will have covering both both physically and spiritually um figuratively speaking but also that the the penalty that should have uh, been executed on them right then and there physical death was actually suspended temporarily through the symbolic uh, sacrifice of this animal. And they spiritually died, of course, they eventually physically died, but they forsook immortality for disobeying God, and then God provided a temporary substitute. But then, he promises something more. Does someone have Genesis 3.15? I will put... Yes, the gospel in Genesis 3. Uh, God provides the blood sacrifice, as we said, for Adam and Eve to pay their immediate death penalty and to show them mercy through that substitute animal. But even greater than that, the text prophesies an even better, more eternal substitute to come, the offspring, a man, who will defeat the power of the snake by crushing his head or bruising his head while at the same time sustaining his own injuries bruising bruising his own heel absorbing the injury that the snake incurs upon him so we see even from the beginning immediately after man sins God starts to establish the principle of substitution, both immediately for them and future-looking for them. And so we need to understand that this principle of substitution is steeped way, way back into the beginning of history, even before the law is given, even before God um, calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and calls a people to himself through Abraham, even before Moses, substitution as a principle is established. Let's now turn to another picture. Does anyone have any questions about that before we go on? All right. Um, Picture number two, Genesis 22. This is, again, before God has established his law. This is involving the famous story of Abraham and Isaac. If someone could read for me, Genesis 22, 1 and 2. Okay, so we see the pattern again starts with a penalty declared. God's going to test Abraham and ask Abraham to execute a penalty of death or a death upon his son of promise, Isaac. Uh, and, and then what happens next? Genesis twenty-two eleven through 13. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. The immediate provision of a substitute. So instead of the death penalty falling upon Isaac, the son of promise, the last second, God stops the blow, calls out to Abraham, and immediately provides an animal substitute instead of Isaac dying. So Isaac becomes the beneficiary of a substitute instead of his own death. Isaac is a picture of a substitute to come as he would carry his instrument of execution would up a hill to be sacrificed by his father and yet God steps in and provides a substitute in this case can someone get for me same chapter Genesis 22 verse 8 and then down 13 and 14 so just 8 and then 13 and 14
1: Abraham looked up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided.
0: So the, the key word in substitution here is instead of his son. But there's something even more amazing happening in this scene that promises a better substitute to come through this scene. So as we said, the animal sacrifice is provided to immediately save Isaac from the penalty of death. But what does it say in verse 8? He says, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering for my son. So they both, so they both, the both of them went together. There's a little bit of a, you have to read this carefully. What was the sacrifice provided in the story? A ram. But Abraham, speaking prophetically whether he knew it or not, said, God will provide a lamb. Fast forward to John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So not only was Isaac a beneficiary of a substitute sacrifice in the form of of a ram, but the ram that was provided for him didn't even fully fulfill the words of Abraham, speaking and trusting the Lord that he would provide a sacrifice of a lamb for himself because he was speaking about the one to come, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the same way that Isaac climbed the hill, carrying the instrument of his execution, which was wood, another lamb would come and ascend a hill, carrying the instrument of his execution, which was wood, and become the substitute sacrifice for the sins of the world. So we see in this picture, what we need is a substitute death. We need a penalty paid that we wouldn't otherwise have because of our sin. Any questions about that? The book of Hebrews goes on to comment on this scene and says that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, uh, knowing that he's going to trust the Lord to go through this ritual. And if Isaac dies, he's still going to trust that Isaac is the son of promise because Hebrew says he trusted that God could even raise Isaac from the dead to keep the promise uh, to him going because he trusted God's word. This is all good news, and we see, again, the principle of substitution established. Let's fast forward way, way ahead and look into the prophets. So we're talking about the book of Zechariah chapter 3. Can you guys turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3? In this picture, we're going to see... Not only do we need to substitute death to pay the penalty for our sin, but we also need to substitute righteousness. We need someone to step in and, and live or provide a, a righteousness that we don't have in and of ourselves because of our sin. If Someone could get for me Zechariah 3.1. Remember, we're looking first for the penalty declared in our pattern here. Or, in this case, an accusation. Zechariah
1: 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him.
0: Yeah, so uh, Joshua, the high priest, a sinner, in this vision that Zechariah has, standing before God, and Satan's there accusing him. So so the accusation or the penalty in this case is is that accusation that comes from the devil to accuse him. then what's our immediate substitute provided, Zechariah 3, 3 and 4?
1: Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the I have taken your iniquity
0: away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So in this case, the provision of a substitute immediately from God for Joshua for his filthy garments, for the representation of his sin is not a death sacrifice, but actually a new covering, a righteous covering, a clean set of garments that represents righteousness that Zechariah or that Joshua doesn't have in and of himself. And then the promise of a better sacrifice or a better substitute to come, verses 9 and 10. Under this big tree. So, not only will God provide a substitute righteousness for Joshua, but God will provide a substitute righteousness that is far grander in scale and in scope because it will purify the whole land in one fell swoop. God's people, through the provision of this substitute righteousness, Will stand impervious to Satan's accusations, not on the basis of righteousness that we have achieved, but on the, on the basis of garments that God provides through a substitute, righteousness that we don't have. The whole, the, the, the scope and scale of what God um, includes in this promise is that, that he will remove iniquity from the land in a single day. And so we see a miraculous promise to come in the form of substitute righteousness. Does anyone have any questions about that scene before we move on to our next one? So we need a substitute death. We need a a substitute righteousness. Third, we need a substitute that will affect our eternal salvation. And there's no better picture of this than in the Passover. Um, Let's turn to Exodus 12. We're going to read verses 12, and then 13, and then 14, but remember, we're looking for a penalty declared first, verse 12, the provision of an immediate substitute, second, verse 13, and the promise of a better substitute to come, verse 14. So can someone just read all three of those for me? Exodus 12, 12 through 14.
1: shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. You shall keep it
0: as a feast. So what happens in the Exodus? God promises he's going to send the angel of death to kill people and the only way of salvation from that death is that you paint the the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost, which is the substitute sacrifice that, that the angel of death will look upon and spare the people under that blood. Not because of their own righteousness, not because of anything that they did according to merit but because of the blood of that sacrifice that substitute that is standing in their place that is dying in their place so we have the penalty of death declared we have the immediate provision of of a substitute in the form of that lamb and then the promise of a better substitute to come god commanded the people of israel to observe this statute regularly and to do this forever in their history and what's the reason for that well, the reason is to create a repetition and to create a reminder, and even more than that, to create a yearning for a better substitute to come where they won't have to keep doing this over and over and remembering it over and over and over again. And so it's not explicitly said in verse 14, but the the repeated feast that they're intending to are intended to observe every year points to that coming substitute that will once for all, through one single sacrifice, put, put an end to sin and death. And so we read in Exodus 12, 24 and 25, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. As a result of the exodus that they experienced from Egypt, They will be rewarded a land, and the parallel to that better, the, the, the better parallel that we will receive as a result of the better substitute to come is the good and eternal land in heaven. So this scene teaches us, we've already learned that we need to substitute death, we've already learned we need to substitute righteousness, but we need a substitute that will actually affect our eternal salvation, and that's what this scene is teaching us. The Old Testament is filled with pictures like this to establish these principles to teach this idea that we need a substitute in a sort of faded and shadowed manner so that when God eventually unfolds his plan through a substitute to come we recognize it. And it's amazing and it's glorious. And so he does this through Israel to Israel through hundreds of years and thousands of years through failure and sin so that they would yearn and grow to anticipate the provision of a substitute to come. And so our last scene in the Old Testament is to look at what this substitute will look like. If you would turn with me to Isaiah 53, this oracle from Isaiah promises that this substitute will actually be a man He'll actually be a servant. And I'm going to read it for us. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 12. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors we see the servant who perform a vicarious work that is a work for his people for others that receive the benefit carrying our sins and identifying with our weaknesses. We see that he'll face death and torture for our sin and not his because he was righteous. We see that he serves as all sufficient for all of his people, the perfect and satisfying substitute. He serves as a substitute for all of us who deserve his death that he does not deserve. And he offers his righteousness he's the substitute righteousness that the text describes god will provide this substitute to to satisfy his wrath it was god's will to crush him so that he could exhaust the the anger that he has towards our sin on this suffering servant and he will fulfill the payment of death that we deserve He will provide righteousness for many the text says and being treated like a sinner the servant substitute through his service will receive glory from god for this work these are all specific prophecies fulfilled in a substitute servant to come and we now start to see in the old testament that it's going to come through a man a righteous man that we aren't and so what do we need what did the old testament teach us First of all, we need to substitute death that we deserve to our sin. Second, we need to substitute righteousness to replace our sinful life if we're going to stand before God and be declared righteous. Third, we need a substitute that affects the outcome of our eternity that results in our salvation so that, as Psalm 49 says, we can live forever and not see the pit. So how will God provide all of these things? How will he bring them all together in a substitute to come? Well, I think you know the answer, or at least I hope you do. The answer is in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that, that God has promised. So let's turn to the New Testament. But before we do, are there any questions about anything we cover in the Old? Hey, can you go through those three again? Sure. Two, three Sure. We need, uh, we need substitute death to pay our penalty. We need to substitute righteousness so that we can stand before God and Him not see our sin. And we need a substitute that will affect our eternal salvation, that actually has effect to save us. Those are the three things. Any other questions? Uh, that's great we're getting there so um, hopefully in the next few minutes the the lesson answers a question but uh but great question Um, so New Testament turn with me to Mark chapter 10 if someone forget if someone could get with for me uh, Mark 10 verses 43 to 45 Okay.
1: but it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all
0: for even the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many we see the language that we just saw prophesied in isaiah 53 what god defines as greatness is service and he sends the servant, Jesus Christ, to serve. And what is, the, what is the culmination of God's mercy in the servant's service, in Jesus' service? He gives his life for someone. He gives his life for, as a ransom for many. Every, anytime you see that preposition for, in the New Testament, the verse is talking about substitution, because something is happening for the benefit of others. And who is it that the, the substitute death, that the service of, the, of Jesus benefits? It's for many. Uh, the second question that we have to ask about the New Testament is, how did Jesus accomplish this substitution that we need? How does he pay the penalty that Psalm 49 says, declares that we need the life of another so that we would live forever and never see the pit. Well, to answer Sharif's question, Jesus is both God, meaning he's perfectly qualified to serve as a substitute for sin because he's perfectly righteous. He's fully God. He's also truly man, able to die for the sin of another. We we talked about this riddle at the beginning. How is God going to make it so that when we read Psalm 49, 7 through 9, we can have a substitute to pay our life's debt that doesn't incur upon himself his own debt and actually has the ability to die for us? Well, God is a spirit and can't die, so he sends the Son in in human form, in likeness of flesh, so that Jesus can die to... to uh, Fulfill that penalty. Philippians 2 6 through 8 says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he's being a servant, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So Jesus, in his service, in emptying himself of equality with God as something to be prized, becomes a man so that he can die and fulfill that first point that we said. We need a substitute death. The only way to do it is for God to die. And the only way that God's going to die is that God becomes like us, mortal, uh, and to live a life on this earth. So Jesus serves as our substitute death. But what was the second? Well, along with that, we also need a substitute penalty. Can someone get uh, for me Colossians 2, uh, 2, 13 and 14? Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. We're going to see the effect of this death penalty fulfilled for us in these verses.
1: With legal
0: demands this he set aside to the cross what is the effect of Jesus substitution on the cross what is the effect of his death? it's to cancel our debt to nail it to the cross what the law demanded of us which was perfection which we could not fulfill Jesus fulfilled and in his death we get our penalty paid because of his perfection Jesus is, Our substitute death and our substitute penalty server but more than that he's also our substitute wrath bearer we remember that that um, sin results in the wrath of God so what happened on the cross Matthew 27 if you would turn with me there I'm gonna read verses 45 and 46 and then the result 51 and 52 First, what happened? Verse 45. Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bore the wrath of God. God turned his graceful presence away from Jesus while he was on the cross and turned his face away only purely in wrath towards Jesus in that moment. And in doing so, Jesus absorbed the penalty and the wrath, the anger of God due our sin, that any sinner that would repent and turn and trust in Jesus would would be spared hell forever. So imagine the math of this, that if Jesus bears the wrath of God for yet one sin that deserves eternal wrath in hell. Multiply that by all the sins that you've ever committed. Multiply that by all the people who would ever trust in Jesus for this wrath bearing substitution. And that is what Jesus uh, experienced. That's what he absorbed on the cross when God turned his graceful face away from him and, and in so doing, abandoned him or forsook him on the cross. And what was the result? What do we get from that? Verses 51 and 52. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So Jesus is our propitiation. Propitiation is the fancy theological word meaning wrath-bearing sacrifice. Wrath-satisfying sacrifice. So he satisfies and exhausts God's wrath. And consequently, he opens access to God for all of those who would believe. Jesus' substitution took the wrath of hell from us so that we could be reconciled to God. And it's symbolized by the curtain to the Holy of Holies, the, the place where, the, where God's Spirit resides with his people, being torn in two, symbolizing that now um, that barrier has been Broken, That chasm has been bridged so that we can receive salvation. We can have wrath satisfied for us too through Jesus' sacrifice. So these are all the ways that Jesus is our death sacrifice. He, he paid our death penalty. He, he took away our debt and he bore the wrath of God. But we, he also was the substitute in resurrection for us. So we need to be raised as well. Can someone uh, get for me First Corinthians fifteen, twenty to twenty-two. Which verses again? Uh, twenty to twenty-two. First Corinthians fifteen. These verses prove that Jesus was the righteous substitute that we required. How is it that we can live forever and never see the pit? It's to become united to Jesus in his resurrection from the dead. So when we trust in him, when we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, we become resurrected spiritually. We be, we're made into a new creation because we're united to Jesus in his resurrection resurrection from the dead, but we're also promised a resurrection to come so that on the last day, he will raise us from the dead because he was raised first. And God will treat us not according to the wrath that we deserve, but according to glory that comes with our new body. So even though our first father, Adam, sinned and for us gave us a nature which would incur God's wrath through sin, Jesus did something far greater, which was to unite us to him in resurrection so that he could become the first fruits of those from the dead, to, to have us and our bodies follow when, he, when Jesus returns. So Jesus is also, while he's the substitute death that we need, he's the substitute resurrection that we need. And then he's also the substitute righteousness that we need that we talked about. We we saw the the picture of Zechariah there with the dirty garments needing fresh, clean, righteous ones. Romans 5.19 says, similar parallel to what we just read, For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many were made righteous. So it wouldn't be enough for Jesus to only pay our death penalty. We would have our debt removed, but we wouldn't have the positive storehouse of righteousness that we need to be able to stand before God in fellowship. But Jesus accomplishes that also through substitution. When we trust in Jesus, what happens to us is our account, which was filled with sin, gets placed upon Jesus at the cross and he bears that blackness upon his body that erases our bank account but then he fills it with something new which is his righteousness why did jesus have to live a perfect life why did he have to become a man not only so that he could die a physical death but so that he could live according to the law perfectly so that when he died and we trust in him we could not only be standing before god with a zero balance but we could stand before God with a billion dollar balance of his righteousness and be accepted on the basis of that. Jesus is our substitute in righteousness, just as he is the substitute in death for us. And then he's the substitute that fulfills the salvation that we need. Romans 5 10 says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more. Now that we are reconciled, reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? One of the great uh, tenets of the Reformation was that we're saved by faith alone and apart from works. Well, in one sense, we're saved by works. But it's not our works. It's Jesus' works. His life gets credited to ours, and we receive salvation because of that, not because of anything that we accomplished. Uh, Shylin, the the former pastor of this church and and Christian rapper, once said, um, salvation in Jesus has many perks. Uh, We are saved by works, His. Uh, And so that's sort of what's in view of Romans 5.10 here. But now that we've seen how Jesus is our substitute in death, He's our substitute in resurrection. He's our substitute penalty payer. He's our substitute wrath bearer. He's our substitute righteousness. To whom does this all apply? Well, first of all, he's a substitute for unrighteous people. So if you're unrighteous, the good news is that there's a substitute available for you. Can someone get for me 1 Peter 3, 18? in the spirit. Jesus died once for all, righteous for unrighteous. Isn't it good news that Jesus came as the substitute for unrighteous people? Because if he came for as a substitute for righteous people, first of all, they wouldn't need a substitute. And second of all, no one would qualify. So, um, So in God's kindness, in his mercy, it's pretty basic, but should be noted that Jesus came to be the substitute for the unrighteous people who would humble ourselves and receive him as our substitute for salvation our greatest need in life is having a substitute for our sins and and Jesus fulfilled that because He did it while we were yet sinners while we were unrighteous He's not only the substitute for unrighteous people, but he is the substitute for everyone based on one condition does anyone can anyone read for me John three sixteen to eighteen? Yep. the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of god the only requirement that jesus requires of us that we might receive him as substitutes that we believe um, that's by faith we are united to him and it's according to God's mercy and according to God's love. But what's, what's amazing here is that God loved the world. So the only thing that... He, that um, qual- well, it's, it's Jesus' righteousness and, and death that qualifies us for this salvation. But it's that we would believe in Him. And if we don't believe, the result is that we don't receive Him as substitute and we're condemned instead. And so this should be encouraging as good news to anyone who would humble ourselves, but also sobering to any of us who doesn't have Jesus as our substitute. But all he, all he calls us to do is turn from our sins and believe, and we can have him as substitute. You must believe or else be condemned, the text says. But then he's also the substitute for all kinds of people, all kinds of people all over the world. 1 John 2.2 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the substitute, not only for Jews, but for Gentiles, not only for men, but for women, not only for people who uh, are physically able, but people who have disabilities. God has people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation who believe according to no distinction, according to the flesh. And so it is also good news that we can have Jesus as substitute regardless of our background. And so our last few minutes, before, before we do this, I'm going to take questions. But in our last 10 minutes, I just want to talk about what does this mean for our lives? How should we live in light of these promises that are related to substitution? Do you have any questions about our New Testament passages? Yes. I think so. So um, there's a kind of belief that just acknowledges things that are true, right? Like, So I could, I could say, based on the laws of physics and the principles of sound engineering, I believe that that chair will not fall down when I sit in it. Uh, the demons have knowledge of the character and nature of God that forces them to acknowledge that God is holy and sovereign and good and, and all that, but yet they don't have him as their substitute. So for me to prove or to show that I'm not only believing things that are true intellectually, but, but placing my faith in them is that I'm going to sit in the chair that I just articulated I believe is, is sound. The demons are believing those things that are true in the intellectual sense, but they're not appropriating their, their life into trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and that's the difference. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, you're welcome. Any other questions? All right. How does Jesus as our substitute... Stand to empower and change our lives. That's what we're going to spend the last 10 minutes touching upon. Remember, we receive Jesus' life for our life by faith. We receive his death for our death by faith. We receive his righteousness um, instead of our sin. But that should change and affect and evidence the fact that we have a substitute for our sin. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So you see the principle of substitution there? Jesus loved you, if you're a Christian, and he gave his life up for you. He substituted it for you. And So we receive him by faith, but then we also live by faith. Jesus must become our personal substitute. He must be for me to to expand upon the answer to your question. And how is that? It's by faith alone. But then we become united to Christ by faith alone. He declares us righteous and just once for all when we express faith in him for the first time. But then he empowers that the rest of our lives he will equip us by that same faith, so that we strive in his righteousness, seeking to bring into our experience the righteousness that he already gave us through Jesus, and we can do that knowing that the the, the that our substitute is is sufficient. That we know that the power of sin is. has been defeated in our life. So Jesus is our victor. He's our victorious substitute, which means that we can fight sin knowing that that its power has no stranglehold over us if we are Christians. And so Romans 8, 1 through 4 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. And so, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, when we're saved, we receive Jesus' righteousness in full. And in God's wisdom and how he has ordered things, he, he, he fills us with his spirit so that we continue to live while continuing to be sinners, while continuing to sin. Our, our stance with him as righteous doesn't change. But what he does for his glory is bring into our experience gradual growth in righteousness, gradual growth in holiness, gradual victory over sin, so that we look more and more like Him, which He has already accomplished by giving His righteousness to us when we were saved. It's sort of already we have it, and not yet He's bringing it into our experience so that on the last day when we are glorified and raised from the dead, all of those things come into unity where we are now righteous because of Jesus, uh, because of Jesus' work, but we're also free from sin at that point because we've been given bodies that that don't have the ability to sin and are free from Adam's curse. So what that should do for us is many things. First, Jesus' victory becomes our victory, as we said. So we fight sin knowing that the battle is won. Since we've become united to Christ in His resurrection, we also our new creation. So we, we live with our minds, new, renew, our minds renewed, and Jesus calls us to set our mind on things above. So the application is we should be pouring ourselves into the promises of God through scripture and in fellowship with other believers, not so that we could check a box every day through a devotional, but so that we would set our minds on things above and become more like him because of that washing that happens in our minds. Another implication of substitution is that our value is not found in anything else but Jesus. It's not found in performance. It's not found in whoever we are ethnically or our religious background or anything like that. So because Jesus is our substitute, uh, we can now fight against despair knowing that our value is found in him and not in the world. And we can fight against legalism because we know that our value is found in him and not in our performance so that gives us power jesus substitution is effective once for all which means that our our salvation is secured once we trust in him and that should deliver us from the fear of death the bible says that we're we're constantly if we're if we don't believe we're constantly uh, brought under by the fear of death. So Jesus' substitution free, frees us from that, which then, as a result, can, can prompt us to be bold with the gospel wherever Jesus may send us, and endure pure persecution and rejection, even death, uh, empowered by his strength and his Holy Spirit. We can grow in confidence and faith because Jesus has paid our penalty, and we can... As we said, boldly proclaim Jesus and go out from here, putting to death sin and proclaiming to people, to your question earlier, uh, Sharif, do I talk to people about substitution who don't know Jesus? Well, the question is, what is your greatest need and what do you have? Your greatest need is that you need a substitute for your sin to forgive you from your sin. Do you have that? Let me tell you about him. And so. There's so many implications and applications of this doctrine in our lives. It's not just heady seminary stuff. And the great promise, I love this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Hebrews ten fourteen says, By a single offering, he has perfected, Jesus has perfected, for all time those that are being sanctified. That means that By one single sacrifice, we're saved. We're brought into the family of God forever and secured. But by the same sacrifice, Jesus has accomplished the righteousness and the sanctification, the direction of holiness that he's working out in our lives. He's accomplished that by the same sure promise that he did for our salvation to bring us into the family. So when we struggle with sin, we can remember the promise that ultimately, what's the power that we can be delivered from it? What's the power that we can be victorious from it and be made into Jesus' likeness? It's because his sacrifice did that same thing for us. We don't, we don't talk about that enough, I think, and we should talk about that more. That's because of Jesus' substitution. Lastly, and in summary, there's no greater verse in the Bible that, that explains substitution than 2 Corinthians 5.21, you should memorize this. For our sake... He, God, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news, isn't it? And it summarizes everything we talked about. Jesus is our substitute in death, paying for our penalty. He's our substitute in righteousness. Uh, so that we would become the righteousness of God and the result is that we he's our substitute that affects our salvation because if we have the righteousness of God it's not possible for God to reject us so um, I'll take any questions if there are any and then I'll pray all right happy to take questions afterwards offline if, if you'd rather let's pray Father, we thank you for this great doctrine of substitution. We thank you that you sent Jesus to pay our penalty, but more than that, to fulfill the righteousness that you required for us. And we pray that we would live in light of that, empowered by those truths. May we set our minds on things above, like these promises that we learned today, so that we can, by your power, put to death sin and live in victory over it, because Jesus died for us while we were unrighteous. So give us humble hearts, recognizing that we need his help. And I pray for anyone who doesn't know him, that doesn't have him as their substitute, that they would turn to him for mercy and, and take him for themselves by faith as their substitute as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.